0: Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. We have returning to the podcast twice in like a month and a half. Dr. A.J. Levine, I'm delighted to to be back
1: with you. This is so much more fun than grading papers.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, compared to grading papers, talking to me is... Oh, no, I get to talk about stuff
1: I really like to talk about. I got to talk about um, Old Testament prophecies in the New. Today I get to talk about Christmas. What's not to like?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are, what are you grading papers um, on? I these am days? looking
1: over final reviews from students in two seminars one a seminar on the Gospel of Luke and one a seminar on the parables of Jesus. And I make them, require them to read very high end biblical studies articles and then in 200 words summarize the thesis and provide a critique. So the point is to get them to read, but hmm. also to teach them how to write.
0: That, I mean, that's a, a that's it's a good skill to develop. On
1: my I had person.
0: a yeah, that seems like a lot. Like a scantron would be much easier for your yeah, Thanksgiving so, week. But I, you if know, you just,
1: it, it's upper level yeah. education, and I'd be a crappy teacher if I just let everything go to the electronic sources.
0: That, yeah i 'm not going to argue with you on that, but that 's i 'm sure they appreciate. I had a professor who, when I was a freshman some twenty years ago, say that freshman Bible majors at our you know Church of Christ university know less about the Bible than they did twenty years ago, and his theory is that people are becoming more biblically illiterate at least in my tradition. Do you think that holds up with the students that you're teaching? Do you think there is a diminishment, or is it maintaining, or well, is it increasing? Absolutely, how, how would you and, and it's getting worse.
1: Um, the, although, not so right. much with divinity education. They're, they're just quite surprised that they think things are in the Bible that aren't. Um, and then years ago, and granted, this is not theological education. This is an undergraduate at Vanderbilt. Um, I'm teaching an intro New Testament course, and the student enrolled. It's very sweet young thing. Um, and I started then with the gospel of Mark, which most New Testament scholars think was the first gospel written. I now start with Matthew and just run the canon. Um, so she's reading Mark and I had assigned Mark chapters one through eight for the first night and Mark's uh, eight through, end of eight through 16 for the second. And she calls me on the phone um, after the first day of class. She said, I was re- he died. She said he died. I didn't think he was going to die. And I thought, Mike, talk about biblical illiteracy. But it was such a perfect example of Mark's readers where nobody thinks he's going (laughs) to die. Peter doesn't think he's going to die. And Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to die. So a perfect example of a naive reader who had no idea why people were walking around wearing crosses on their necks. Unbelievable. He died. I assured her, okay, he comes back in the other three Gospels.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mark's kind of disappointing cuz you don't get as much at the end there, but uh once she gets to Matthew it's going to be great for her. The Do you have a theory as why do you think this is becoming the norm for biblical literacy yeah, to be a couple on? There are of right? reasons
1: for it. Um, first was Bible went out of public school systems. So, and that was that was many many years ago. Um People aren't sending their children to religious education to the extent that they used to. A number of kids who had religious education thought, this is the most boring thing in the world, and I'm never going to put my child through, you know, interminable vacation Bible schools or Sunday morning church, uh, church for children. So they're not going to do that. Um, we have a much more diverse population where not everybody was raised in a church or in a yeah. synagogue. So we can't presuppose that they would know these particular stories. Um, And I also think that a lot of theological education for children has gone the route of let's teach our kids to be kind and compassionate, but not necessarily let's teach them the biblical origins of such concerns. And let's not run the biblical stories for them. We're just going to use those particular stories that are going to give us a good social message. So they're missing a good part of what the Bible has to offer. And finally, I think that parents and even teachers are sometimes afraid to read the Bible with their children because they don't think they know it very well either. And they whereas they can answer a question about, you know, wh- why does Snow White hang out with, with uh, these seven people? And why, why is her stepmommy so awful? Parents can answer questions like that. But when kids start asking theological questions or questions about the Bible, sometimes parents pre-sin, they don't want to misguide their children. And sometimes they haven't thought through themselves what the answers might be.
0: Hmm. What do you think someone in my profession, as a preacher, could do to help uh, ameliorate this problem? So you want me to fix
1: Christianity for you?
0: I mean, why not? I mean, (laughs) if you have any, if you have anything you want me to consult about Judaism, I'm willing to do that afterwards. I got enough Jews. Um, Yeah. So here's what
1: you can do. (laughs) You can get kids interested in scripture uh, by, instead of asking them right or wrong questions, ask them open-ended questions. Like, um,
0: That's good. Wh- what That's do good. you think
1: Peter was feeling when Jesus said uh, you know, a good Jesus comment? How do you think Jesus was feeling in Gethsemane? Um, when you read the Christmas story, who do you think the Magi, magi or who do they remind you of? Do they ask good questions or do they ask silly questions? Um, uh, if you, and you can ask slightly older children to point. If you were doing a movie, who would you have played the Magi, or who, who would you have played the shepherds? What do you think about Mary? What would you do with gold, frankincense, and myrrh? And what would you prefer to get? Would it have been better if they had given yeah. Jesus a My Little Pony or, what, or whatever the things are that people get today? So get them involved <laughs> in the story and, and point out stuff that interests you. So if, if you're doing if you're doing Christmas. Um, when the Magi come into um, Jerusalem and they say to Herod, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews after Matthew has just identified as Herod as the King of the Jews? Is that a somewhat impolitic question? Is that really the question you want to ask Herod? Could you have phrased it in a better way? I think the Magi are just hysterically funny um, and they kind of trip over themselves in getting the right answer. Whereas the wise people in Jerusalem are absolutely clueless to what they're supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, find these, find these moments of humor, um, find moments of irony, find moments of, of wonder, and, and be able to wonder about it. So they pick up a star which functions like a GPS, the stars, you know, it drops them off in Jerusalem, then they pick it up again and it gets them to it gets them to Bethlehem. Stars don't really do that because back then they didn't think of stars as stars. Stars weren't giant balls of hydrogen gas back then. They they thought of stars as sentient beings, like Bill and Peter Pan, yeah. and, and they could get you places. And they'd say, have you ever followed a star? Did it ever drop you off anywhere? You know, what star would you follow? Look in the night sky yeah. and see. I mean, just engage kids' that, imaginations.
0: I love the idea of engaging their imaginations, which is far more compelling than I, I don't know if it's specifically. A Western Protestant way of doing it, but give us the three right answers to our fill-in-the-blank yeah. questions. That is sort of the mentality of, here's, you know, memorize the books of the Bible in order, and, you know, tell me the 12, you know, the tribes or 12 disciples, instead of getting people to, it's more like a Scantron kind of way of, like, here is the fill-in-the-blank an- answer I'm going to try to download for you, so if you ever get Bible trivia then you can give us the answer. That doesn't seem as compelling as stepping into the story, imagining, having these more open-ended, participatory sort of uh, dialogues, which I think actually help us get anchored more into the story. And that's
1: probably the way the text was was understood in, in its earlier incarnations. If I can use that term for Christmas, um, when Jews read scripture, <laughs> right, when Jews read scripture, the, we ask questions of that text, and those, and the text itself gives rise to conversation among the people who were doing the reading. And I think that's probably what happened when these stories were first told. So you're sitting in some house church, which could could accommodate maybe 20, 30 people. I mean, buildings back then, unless you're super, super wealthy, they're pretty small. So we're not thinking about, you know, like First Baptist of of Nashville, which is a huge and beautiful church, by the way. Um, So some storyteller would get up and say, all right, let's now tell the story about um Joseph who's engaged to this woman and suddenly she turns up pregnant and the child isn't his and he resolves to divorce her quietly and then people say, what would you do under the circumstances right and then he has a dream and people go oh he's a guy named Joseph whose father is named Jacob he has a dream what does that remind you of um, and then everybody starts channeling Donnie Osmond and the amazing Technicolor Dream Club. So what does the story remind you of? What would you do if you were in that position? What do you think Mary was thinking? What was Mary's mother thinking, for heaven's sake? Um, mm. uh, so it's not a matter of right or wrong. And it's not a matter of trivia. Because if all we teach kids is trivial, then we're missing the main point of the message. So yeah. get involved in the story and enter it in a variety of different perspectives. What would children think about this? What would um newlyweds think about this? What would older people think about this? What story does this particular tale in Matthew or in Luke remind you of? And what happens when you read those stories together?
0: Wow. Yeah, I like that. I like and by the way, I like that you've already jumped in with the Christmassy sort of stories, because you know that's where we're going in the conversation. Say, so yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, the reason I have, uh, let me just back up a little bit. I mean, the reason I have you back on the podcast is twofold. First, I had just a deluge of positive feedback from you being on the podcast. People loved oh, you. Nice. They, yeah. they, they just love AJ. So I, they, they say we want her back. And I said, well, let's make that happen. And two, when I asked you on the podcast, like, well, well how come you haven't written any books? And you'd written like a, half a dozen since the last time I had you on. I was embarrassed that somehow I didn't keep up with all your publication schedules. And so lo and behold, after the podcast, we're talking about the books that you'd written. I went out, got your advent book, which is entitled Light of the World, which came out is 2019, right? So a year ago. And uh, I was reading it just, you know, getting ready for uh, Advent and my own sermon writing. And so I shoot you an email, hey, I really like this. I'm going to steal a bunch. And you say, make sure I steal ethically or whatever, to which I say, I always do that most of the time. But as a way for me to ethically steal the content from this, I figure, well, let's just have you back on the podcast. And that's my way of saying whatever I rip off in my Advent sermon series, it's probably from AJ. Does that yeah, count? I
1: think that's terrific. I'm delighted to hear that people liked our conversation. I really liked our conversation.
0: Well, I like the way that you said our conversation. They when they talked to me, they didn't say, I like what you said, Luke. They said specifically, I like AJ. So thank you for including me in that. That's very generous. Yeah, you of already
1: me. know they like you, otherwise they wouldn't be bothering to tune in.
0: <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of hate listening that happens these days. But nevertheless, they're listening they hear you. And the book, Light of the World, you talk about how as, by the way, if people haven't figured out, and they forgot from the last time, uh, as a Jewish woman, you grew up with a love for Christmas. Oh, love which is Christmas. Like-
1: I thought the reason all those Christians put up lights was to, to make Jews happy. Look, they're doing, it's like parents might have told. Me, Look, they're doing that for you, right? We don't have to do that. Other people do. So I'm just driving around with my parents, going, "Look at these beautiful lights. This is wonderful." People would come to our house and sing stories about round virgins. I mean, it, you know, what's not to like?
0: <laughs> so early on in Massachusetts, you're growing up, you have this love for Christmas. It, it, when So you go off, uh, you study at Duke, which we discover, discussed last time. Uh, where in the process did you start to pick up the story and start to become captivated, not just by the lights and the kind of the uh, the pomp and circumstance of the way an American Christmas looks, but the actual heart of the story?
1: Um, I, I don't think it took me till graduate school, and I don't think it took me to my undergraduate years at Smith College either. I had always liked it. Um, so I so oh, okay. I grew up in a neighborhood that was um, you know like in, almost entirely Roman Catholic except for our family and one or two others. Um, so my introduction to Christianity is Portuguese Roman Catholicism and, and that was great and it's like Our Lady of Fatima. Hmm. so I'm already into Mary because I'm into Our Lady of Fatima because everybody else was. Um, I'm into those so it's a Portuguese community, yeah, Portuguese that... community. huh nice. yeah southeastern Massachusetts Portuguese community.
0: I haven't spent a whole lot of time in Southeast Massachusetts, so I didn't know that. Fascinating. Okay,
1: carry on. the the best donuts in the world other than Sufganiyot, which are Israeli donuts. Oh, fabulous food, wonderful people. Um, uh, chorizo and, kil- and, and various other forms of, of Portuguese sausage like to die for. Fabulous stuff. Anyway, um, it, I, I was fascinated by the Christmas story because I, I like the idea of um, – Mary and Joseph, you know, traveling while she's pregnant and they're on this dawn, and mm-hmm. that was interesting. I knew it was Roman Empire stuff, and I, I knew from you know Greek mythology and Roman mythology about some of that. So that was interesting. Um I never thought the magi were terribly wise, so I couldn't figure out why they were called wise because <laughs> they just seemed kind of klutzy to me. Um I mean I was just fascinated by this. And like everybody had Christmas trees, so you know. I I didn't know there weren't Christmas trees in the New Testament because I hadn't read the New Testament yet. But I thought this is a great religion. You get candy cane, you get Christmas trees, you get Santa Claus. Um, And it turned out that the Santa in the Star Store, which hasn't been there in like 50 years, in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which was the big town. The guy who was Santa in the Star Store was this Jewish guy who went to my synagogue. So I would go sit on his lap and we would talk about what happened in synagogue. So, I mean, Santa was friendly too. Santa was Jewish. Yeah. And everybody else was Jewish. <laughs> so, you know, it was it was like my story.
0: So you're in. I love So it. the lights, the candy, the tree, you're there. You're excited about it. You have this line where you talk about the Christmas stories, uh, the thing about Mary, how she remembered, she stored these things up. Yeah. And then you say uh, some of these stories develop like uh, an old photograph where it takes some time for it to develop. And as you said, I thought, oh, my goodness, that's right. Because when it comes to Christmas, we have – two chapters in Matthew, two in Luke, and then we have, you know, the the cosmic telling in John, which doesn't really give us details as much as it's like this big cosmic, you know, beautiful poetry. But it's, it's, functionally, the Bible gives us four chapters. Right. Yet, these are stories that, I'm not saying they get an undue amount of time, but they get substantially more time than most other small sections of the New Testament. Is that fair to say?
1: That's correct. That and the Passion narrative during Holy Week. But uh, but it seems like
0: the passion narrative, like, that kind of, it, it warrants all the attention, whereas it seems like the Christmas stuff are a small amount that, you know, Paul doesn't ever write about Christmas, you don't have any other, you know, epistles in which they're referencing it, mm-hmm. whereas the passion, like, that's, everyone's talking about it, but the Christmas story, like, there's not a whole lot in the Bible about it, right? There's very,
1: very little. The birth of Jesus is, for the Bible as a whole, not terribly important or at least the details of the birth. And you're right. We, we tend to read from the gospel of John back into the synoptics. So the important thing is that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what's really important. And the rest of it kind of is, is is enhancing or embellishment, but it's not the the major focus, but for kids saying in the beginning was the word, their first question is what word, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so that do, it doesn't really hold them. Stories hold. Philosophical statements tend not to hold, and poetry doesn't hold kids like it might hold an adult who can who can work on every single word and why it's important. Mm. Kids want the picture.
0: Yeah, no, no, that ma- that makes sense. You, you just use the word embellishment, and that reminded me. You talk in your book about how you want to write this for for two camps of people. I guess there's a lot of camps of people who are going to connect to it, but specifically talk about how some people who who see the um, claims for historicity, which are difficult to actually back them up and they check out. Mm -hmm. And then there's others who said, no, this is literal. And I read it literally. So you have like these two camps and you're trying to write to both of them. It seems like that's almost impossible. Tell me how uh, you think we can do both of those.
1: Yes. Yet I somehow seem to have succeeded. Um. (laughs) Uh, well, you begin with sympathy for both groups instead of saying um, you're you're stupid or you're atheistic or you're you're just you know not a very good reader because it doesn't help to insult the people you're speaking with. Um, both the people who who toss the to use more Christmas imagery the baby out with the bathwater. They, um, it's you know there's no such thing as a virginal conception and the stories didn't happen and Matthew and Luke are inconsistent so therefore they're both wrong. Um, and and you just ch- you check the whole thing out and you you go become a social justice warrior, but Christmas doesn't mean anything to you anymore. Um, to recover the mystery that that those people might have had when they were children, and Jesus went out and when Santa went out, um, hmm. and to say what what is you don't have to take the story literally in order for the story to have an enormous amount of meaning with its various intertexts, its allusion to political developments. Um, is connections to the scriptures of Israel, what the church would call the Old Testament. Um, so you can read the story as if you would read a parable. There doesn't have to be a real prodigal son or a real good Samaritan for those stories to hold enormous meaning. And for the people who say it's all literal and Matthew and Luke are recording exactly what happened, even though the texts don't match up, to say, OK, if you want to believe everything the texts say, that's fine. But why, why are they using this word rather than that word? And why is Matthew emphasizing um, Joseph? And why is Luke emphasizing Mary? And so what do you do with these distinctions? So that even if you take it literally, you still have to wonder about the artistry of the evangelist, what message is being conveyed. So religious text should be more than simply um, kind of dry records of what actually happened. Because anytime somebody writes history, um, the author is going to have some say on how that history is going to be spun Um, If you read about uh, contemporary politics, if you read about what's happening, for example, um, with Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden, um, it's going to make a difference as to whether the person telling the story writes for MSNBC or writes for Fox News. They're both telling events as they understood them, but they're telling them quite differently. So how do we assess that language? Mm -hmm. We can do the same thing, but take both extremely positively. Here's the story Matthew wants to tell us. Here's the story Luke wants to tell us. What different meanings can we get from both? And how are those meanings then complementary?
0: Hmm. To to stick with the MSNBC and Fox News metaphor, most of us, we go, well, I I like one side of this, so I'm just going to jettison, or again, throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm just going to get rid of one news source and stick to the one that i like Mm -hmm. that's our natural default and it seems like most of us have become somewhat comfortable with that attitude with how we process the news when it comes to the gospel stories specifically the christmas story how do we not like diverge into that sort of reading
1: right and that's the genius of the early church to give us four gospels um, they, they, there's a text from the, this like, late second, early third century called the Diatessaron, this fellow named Tatian decided to mush all four gospels into one, which is kind of like a Jesus movie, like greatest story ever told or King of Kings. We'll take, yeah. we'll take the wedding of Cana from John and we'll have the good Samaritan from Luke. And then we'll have the Magi from Matthew and we'll throw in something from Mark, like the extended yep. Erosine demoniac. Cause that's a good, scene. yeah. Um, And the church decided not to do that. It said, we're going to tell you four separate versions of the same story, which is brilliant because it says no one, no one story can lock in the magnificence Hmm. of of this announcement. In the same way, we have two different creation narratives, and we have two stories of how to understand David and Goliath. I mean, it's very different ways of understanding the same story. Just say, what's your take? And once you think you've got a lock on that truth, there are three other Gospels to give you permutations of it. So everything Mm -hmm. you have will always be partial. And that's good news to us because it keeps us humble, right? Um, And there's always something new to learn, which is good news for us because it keeps us from getting bored. Um, And there'll always be a different text that will speak to us at a different time. So if we're depressed, this text is going to be more helpful than that text. If we want something to celebrate, you know, first uh, Corinthians 13 is better than Job. Um, you know, we we have we have options. And I think that's wonderful for some people. Uh, Mark is the greatest gospel ever, because Mark keeps us in tension. I mean, the, the original manuscripts of Mark ending with scared women fleeing an empty tomb. But you know, the story got told, because that's why we have the New Testament. So it says to you, the reader, how do you fill in? How do you overcome your fear and take the next step? And that's, that's extraordinary yeah. Or you have that odd material at the end of John, cha- John chapter 21, the appendix about what happened to the beloved disciple who doesn't even show up in the synoptic gospels or Luke gives you the road to Emmaus, which, which gives you Jesus in disguise, which is great because that's, <laughs> that's a Greek mythological motif or God's very obvious. Yeah. So that's great. Um, Um, And then you've got in Matthew, the appearance to the women. How cool is that? Right. And they become the missionaries. Um, And then you have the great commission at the end where there are a bunch of guys standing on this hilltop in Galilee. And and Jesus and Matthew says, and Jesus appeared to them. And some doubted. How fabulous is that? Like they see the resurrected Christ. And some of them are going, I'm not sure. Literally, I can believe my eyes, but I'm going to take this leap of faith and go with it anyway. Mm. Which means that if you're a Christian and you have a doubt about something, that doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you a potential disciple.
0: Mm-hmm. They're all That's fabulous,
1: good. but they're all different stories. Yeah.
0: And they all there's a reason they're all in there. There's a reason that. The common move, which obviously it started in the second century, but it's continued, like where you you have this Jesus mashup thing that we want to do to say this is the right one, this is the chronology, this the accurate one. And the church has said over and over again, yeah, that's not what we're doing. That's not what we're doing. We're doing something different, and there's a reason to have all those in there. And one of the things specifically we see in the birth story of jesus is matthew's genealogy which you know you try to harmonize that with some other genealogies especially in the jewish text and you go a little problematic there so if it's not to give us ancestry.com account how can we look at the genealogy and go Wait a minute, this is a this is a little bit uh uh poetic in the way that it describes this how, how do i understand that
1: Sure. Well, it's not a matter of comparing it with Jewish accounts, because we don't have the Davidic household genealogy from um, uh, the, the end of the Babylonian exile all the way up to the time of Jesus. And the genealogies in Matthew and Luke don't agree either. Um, they're, yeah. they're good from you know Abraham to David, but uh, Luke goes back from Abraham all the way back to Adam, whom he calls a son of God, which is pretty cool because it means everybody is a child of God I like mm-hmm. that. Um, Matthew goes through um, David's son, King Solomon. And we all know Solomon, like Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. And Matthew runs the royal line, um, and Luke goes through another son of David's named Nathan and goes not through the royal line, but it's still a Davidic line. So that even the names of Joseph's father differ between Matthew and Luke. And for all those people who say that you know Luke is giving the nicknames, oh come on, um, it, it, they're just giving different versions of the same story. People back then also padded their genealogies. Um, King Herod the Great padded his genealogy, gave himself a very prominent Jewish genealogy going back to the Babylonian exile. Ah, now nah, you fake the whole thing. It's kind of like faking your resume. You know, you want to run for office. Mm-hmm. And say, you know, I got a, a degree from here. or I fought in such and such a war. <laughs> now nah, you didn't. Um, so people <laughs> did that back then. But the idea was, and everybody knew this, um, that you are to some extent judged who you are by who your people are. Hmm. Or as they sometimes say, you know, tell me who your people are. Who's your father, right? Um, What kind of family do you come from? And Luke wants to push the idea that although Jesus is of royal descent, it's not that I'm sitting on the throne better than everybody else, wealthier than everybody else running the country. I'm part of the Davidic family you've never heard of. And that fits in with the idea of servant leadership. And you do what you do, not for your own personal glory, but for the greater glory of God, right? Um, and Matthew goes through the royal line because Matthew really wants to push the idea of Jesus as the son of David. In fact, in Matthew's passion narrative, it's only in Matthew where Judas Iscariot hangs himself. In Luke, he just kind of falls over and blows up um, or an Acts, um, And why? Because David, King David had a, an advisor named Ahitophel. Um, and Ahithophel goes over to the side of David's son Absalom during the civil war. And when Ahithophel realizes that Absalom's going to lose, Ahithophel leaves the army, goes back home, puts his affairs in order, and hangs himself. So just as Ahithophel, the betrayer of David, hanged himself, so Judas, the betrayer of the son of David, hangs himself. I mean, Matthew is playing with these allusions to the Old Testament all over the place. Matthew, also, Matthew, it's, Matthew is such a wonderfully anal gospel. It's, it's like a driver's ed manual for early Christians. You can find your way around it, like five teaching discourses, Jesus' greatest hits, Sermon on the Mount, how to run a mission, chapter 10, parables, chapter 13, how to run a mm-hmm. church, chapter 18, end of the world, 24, 25, with you know, Christmas and Easter <laughs> and a bunch of controversies in between. So it, it's, it's a very easy gospel to find your way around. And Matthew signals that at the beginning by dividing the genealogy into four groups. And, and Matthew makes that explicit. He says, So there are 14, ge- three groups. There are 14 generations from Abraham until David, and 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 generations from the Babylonian exile to the Christ. However, there's always going to be somebody who's going to sit there and count names. Okay, mm-hmm. so what do we have? In order to get the 14, 14, 14 sequence, Matthew had to drop out some of those kings. Okay, so it's not an actual genealogy from some of that earlier records that we have in, in the scriptures of Israel. Yeah. But if you count up that third section. There are only 13 names. As if to say, you all readers, you followers of Jesus, you're part of that 14th generation, and you have a role to play here, too. And you can claim all these people as part of your ancestry as well. Yeah. That's gorgeous. Matthew gives you uh, four, ex- four women. I mean, you get Tamar, who's the first woman mentioned in the New Testament. Um, who winds up um, having sex with her father-in-law. And then you have Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. And then you have um, Ruth, who seduces Boaz on the threshing floor in Ruth chapter three. Um, and then you have, she's not named, she's called the wife of Uriah, who turns out to be Bathsheba, who mm-hmm. has this with King David, which is how we eventually get King Solomon. Um, so that when we get down to Joseph, who's engaged to this virgin who turns up pregnant, we're like, Okay, we've seen something like that before, something that looks like it's sexually suspect, but it isn't at all. So don't you be judging about what's sexually suspect or not. You just go in for the story and you do what you're supposed mm. to do.
0: Because you have it's these, true. yeah, you have these four scandalous women who, uh, who set the tone for what's that? Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I love that. I I wish I would have... Con-
1: they scandalous. I think the men with whom they're paired are
0: scandalous. Oh, that's a better take. Yeah, thank you for saying it that way. That's definitely... Uh, there are four scandalous stories Involving women, yeah, it would be hard to say that Bathsheba is the perpetrator of anything scandalous. Yeah, definitely. Well,
1: we actually with Bathsheba, you don't know
0: what you just. I was just taking your side, and all of a sudden, you're saying I'm wrong again. <laughs> you, you
1: just th- the exception here. Hold on, you, th- you know, when David sees her, does she see him? Right, he's walking by on his rooftop every day, like four o'clock. He's got a martini with one of those good Middle Eastern olives. And, and, you know, and the the army's out fighting and he's just strolling on the king's palace and he sees her happily taking a bath late in the afternoon, which is not really a good time to do this because there's a cool breeze blowing. She knows he's there. So I don't know whether he summons messengers to call her. Whether she's thinking, oh, he's got news from, my husband's out in the front, maybe he has news, maybe something's happened to my husband, or maybe my husband has done an amazing act of bravery and is going to be rewarded, or is she thinking, got him, got him to notice me, you don't know. And that's one of the geniuses of that story. Bathsheba may be a survivor, Bathsheba may be a conniver. It depends upon how you want to read her.
0: Okay, I'm... I'm a little befuddled here. So but they, the other
1: three are fine. Tamar's perfectly righteous. Rahab is perfectly righteous. Ruth is Ruth. to dog. She's so righteous.
0: Yeah, she's, she's good people. So Bathsheba, so you don't take the, I'm not saying it's common now, but there are a lot of people, especially with Me Too being uh, talked about, that they've jumped in and said, you know, Bathsheba was one of the first, you know, Me Too, you know, people. And you're saying this, the text doesn't, you're not saying what you think is right or wrong. You're saying that the text doesn't specify Is she complicit in this or not? Like the text just leaves it open ended.
1: That's exactly right, which is why it's such a good story.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, I can come back
1: now with you talking about Bathsheba and why she's so complicated. Okay, Um, but you can read her as the most Machiavellian woman in the text, or you can read her as a a victim um, who overcomes truly horrendous circumstances to become queen of Israel and arrange to get her son on the throne.
0: I mean, there is a, like a game of thrones, component to the read that you take on it, that she takes, she's a middle of the pack. Uh, her husband is a middle of the pack. So I guess top 30 soldier, wh- wh- but not the King, nowhere close to the King. No,
1: her her husband's husband. never going to be the King. Cause he's a foreign national.
0: Wow. And so she has this Machiavellian role. Oh, okay. Yeah. There is another whole podcast about her. Um, well,
1: one thing just to say about that, because um, I'm interested in, in military figures. Um, uh, there's an army base not too far from Nashville in, in Clarksville. Um, and a number of my students have been ROTC or they're, they've, they've been deployed and now they're, they're doing work. And now we have this huge chaplain's program for our military chaplains. Uh, Beth is part of the military family. Her husband's in the military. Her father's in the military. And she knows how the military functions. And she knows what it's like to be, in effect, an army wife. When huh. things were not, when women were not joining the army, right? Yeah, yeah. And what do you do if you're the one at home? And and how do you rise up the ranks? So yeah. it's yet another way of trying to understand Bathsheba is through sort of how, how the military in antiquity worked. Wow. And we te- we tend to think about ancient soldiers, but we don't tend to think about ancient soldiers' wives, mm. or children.
0: Yeah, definitely don't think about that. But here's a great example of what you said from the very beginning. Imagine the story. Imagine the different angles of it. For me, I like there's a great example. Like I had just said, here's what happened in the story. Cut and dry, you know, Bathsheba's the victim. She has no say in this. He's the king. He can do what he wants. And you go, the text doesn't really say that. It's bigger than what I had confined her to be. And the story is far more layered now. I like right. I, I like a simplistic here it is, but it, if it literally could be either side of the story. Like she's the victim or she's complicit. It, it does make it a far more compelling story.
1: Right. And both are worth raising up and discussing. So she is the victim. She becomes me too. And the importance of that is it happens not to them over there. It happens in our own household. It happens with figures that we would ordinarily admire. And then we can wonder about, is, is this forgivable? Um, uh, can we understand later that there might be love there? Cause that's not clear. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, we can give her complete agency.
0: Wow. Okay, so here, I'm going to spitball here. What do you think a worship service would look like if you tried to preach both, now, you know, I'm an, a Protestant, evangelical, so I get to preach for 30 minutes. You know how that works. Yeah. Unlike, you know, my poor Episcopalians who only get like 12 minutes, which is a real shame. But I could do two Episcopalians. What?
1: Some Catholics get six.
0: Ooh, That's rough. And you have to wear the collar. I mean, there's a lot that they've sacrificed. Oh, the so.
1: Very stylish. I like that. Mm. I like.
0: It's it's. I mean, it's it chokes anyway. To each their own. But if if there's a way that we could tell both of the stories that we just talked about—one side victim, one side complicit—and like tell them both in the service and go this is what scripture invites us into the complexity of life, that there's angles and, and stories that are going that we don't fully understand. And somehow in the midst of this, this is what, it, what we're, we're called to live in the middle. I don't know. There's something there, which uh, I think is far more compelling than just, here's one answer for the story.
1: I think it fits in with Jesus saying, don't judge, you know, because you get judged by the me- measure with which you judge. Oh, um, so you want to put blame immediately. On person A or person. I want to blame Bathsheba entirely. I want to blame David entirely. That's when You don't have all the evidence, and the text calls you up short.
0: Okay, I, that's legitimately the sermon I will preach at some point in the next three years. Don't judge, and then you tell the story both ways, and all of a sudden you see the wisdom of Jesus coming through. Oh, that's great. And this is me officially quoting you and saying that I got this whole idea from you. So now we're good, right? Does that count? Yeah, it
1: depends upon how well you pull off the sermon. <laughs> it's sounding pretty good
0: if it's bad, do you want me to source you or not?
1: um depends upon whether people like it or not
0: <laughs> okay, I'll just wait at the end if it turns out bad, then I'll source if not
1: I, I want your listeners to like me i'm I'm a Jew intruding into their territory and you know i I know you're supposed to love the stranger and all that, but i, want, <laughs> I genuinely want you to like me
0: well i I feel like people like you I think we're good okay let's talk about um so we got four chapters let's talk about um Let's talk about Elizabeth and Zechariah.
1: Love Elizabeth and Zechariah. Okay. They're so the perfect way of starting a story. Um, what the gospel writers do, and this is what uh, writers have always done, is, is writers very rarely have an original idea. Uh, <laughs> same thing with composers. Every, everybody rips off Beethoven, right? Oh. Um, so,
0: it's painfully accurate as someone who's written a couple books. Yeah, that's. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm there too, right? So you, you, you draw <laughs> on other people, and then they spark your imagination, but that's there's so always. True that's there to begin with right yeah 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 um and one of the things that good writers do and this is an old line about religion it's not original to me is you make the the familiar strange and the strange familiar
0: mm-hmm.
1: so really good literature takes something where you think you know where it's going to go and then and then pulls the rug out from you so like i didn't know it was going to go there mm-hmm. um so uh, or you have what might be called variations on a theme. So anybody who's ever been through Suzuki violin where you do the variations on twinkle, twinkle, little star. Right. Okay. Um, uh, so you have um, you have literary conventions like the the soap opera is a convention. Um, when I was a kid, every show on television for all three networks was a Western. Yep. Like Bonanza and Big Valley in the Virginian. Um, and then there were all these medical dramas and now there's anything that uses the word epithelial. Um, so, so you have all of these different genres and, and what makes them interesting is you have plays on the genre you know mm-hmm. here's, here's the quirky lab tech and here's the handsome lead and you know here's here's the the girl you thought was going to be part of the lead, but it turns out she's got a he- husband in, in Afghanistan, whatever. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, as soon as you know you have an elderly, righteous Jewish couple who don't have kids, you know the plot line, because that's Abraham and Sarah, and it's Isaac and Rebecca, and it's infertile Rachel, and it's Hannah and Elkanah, she's the mother of Samuel, and it's um, Manoah and Mrs. Manoah, they're the parents of Samson, and it's the Isha Gadolah, the great woman of Shunem, um, and the prophet Elisha who helps her out, not quite sure how specifically, but eventually she winds up getting pregnant. Um, So you're waiting for the variation on the theme. Okay. And then you have the fun part of Zachariah is in the temple and he's praying and you don't know what he's praying for, but you can imagine, you know, Elizabeth is getting on in years and, you know, Zachariah is no spring chicken. Um, And this angel appears, right? And then, and the angel tells him that, you know, he's going to have a kid and Zachariah's like, well, you know, I'm old and my wife is getting on in years and the angel gets huffy, so now we've got a pissed angel, which is kind of funny in a weird way, because you really don't want to annoy angels. You're like, I'm Gabriel. I stand before the throne. Who are you to question me? And because of this, you'll be struck mute. Okay, well, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen in any of the stories. And then you have to imagine, because this is being acted out. I mean, people aren't reading text back then, because most people can't read. So, so there's some storyteller there who's telling the story about Zechariah is now mute. But having done the afternoon incense offering, he has to go out and bless the people. But how do you bless the people if you can't speak? So you have to try to figure out what this is. Like an angel appeared to me, puts a little halo over his head. He flaps his arms like they're wings. And he told me I'm going to have a baby. And I don't know how you do. Well, I do know how you're going to say how I'm going to have a baby in sign language. But but you really don't want to do that in the Christmas story because that's that's a little too graphic.
0: Yeah, we're not going to do that one.
1: And, And then he's got to go back and explain this to Elizabeth. And God, I hope she's literate. I think she is actually. So, and then eventually she conceives and you know, wh- what did they not talk about? And then finally, right. So Mary shows up and now you've got these two pregnant Jewish women and the guy can't speak. Fabulous. This is a funny story. Mm-hmm. It's miraculous and it's hopeful and it's entirely conventional and completely new at the same time. It's it's a brilliant work of art.
0: And their names, Elizabeth and Zechariah are both telling the original audience something because their names are translated functionally around the theme of God remembering. God keeps God God's keeps oath. Is to
1: remember, right? Um, and Elizabeth's name is shared with the name of Aaron's wife, and that gets you that high priestly family connection. Mm-hmm. So you have Jesus, who's going to be in the royal line, um, the line of King David, but you have John the Baptist, who's going to be in the priestly line, and this is the line of Aaron. So you have. Um, the priest and the royalty coming together, and both of them function also as prophets. Um, so it's a nice way of saying, what are the major roles you have in antiquities? The priesthood, the prophetic, and the and the monarchical. Mm-hmm. And the two, the two sons bring all three to life um, in a new way. Yeah. But yet in a way that, that also looks familiar.
0: So it, it looks familiar. This isn't a new story. It's an old story, but it's told new. And so you have you know, all three of those lines that are kind of brought together and they're juxtaposed against the, the Roman power. The Roman power is, so there's the, there's a, 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 another part of the tension that exists in the story.
1: Oh, Rome is behind everything. Um, so when we start thinking about the Christmas story as just the sweet little story for kids, we lose the whole politics of it. As soon as you start talking about kings like King David or in Matthew, King Herod the Great, Or Caesar Augustus, who rules the world, and he's responsible for the census Mm -hmm. in the Gospel of Luke. You know you're on the political stage. So John the Baptist is on the political stage in Judea. Um, Jesus is on the political stage of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And then what king are you going to follow? Since the Roman emperors, starting with Caesar Augustus, call themselves God and son of God, which God are you going to worship?
0: Yeah, and which gospel are you going to believe?
1: And, and whose good news are you going to believe? Right, because the term gospel, oiongilion, is a political term in, in, in for Greek speakers, and it's usually the good news of what the government has done for you, like the government declares a tax holiday, or the government um, sets up a new games to entertain the people. That's oiongilion. That's good news. Yeah. So is the good news a tax holiday, or is the good news salvation of the world? Is the good news ruled by Roman armies or ruled by Roman census? And the only reason, there are two reasons to take a census. One, to figure out how much money you could suck out of the locals. And two, to figure out how many men you can conscript for the army. So do you want somebody who's going to count you one by one for whatever they can get out of you? Or do you want, and this is going to the, the parables in Luke chapter 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Do you want somebody who's going to count you up to 99 and if you turn up missing, you count as much as everybody else and, and that, that sheep owner is going to go find you as well?
0: That's good. That'll preach. That's really good.
1: Yeah, I also wrote a book about parables, so I kind of
0: I've read that one. I have read that one. The, the oh, so Another character that you mentioned early on in the show was the Magi, the, yeah. the astrologers. Now, I know I'm told that uh, there are three kings, because I was told that as a kid. I heard songs about it. Uh, which Bible verse tells me that the Magi are actually king?
1: Uh, none. So there aren't necessarily three, and they're not necessarily kings.
0: Oh, no. You're ruining yeah, Christmas. Yeah, I'm sorry. About yeah. It also, the text doesn't tell you it
1: came upon a midnight clear either. That's, that's the second century prote-evangelium <sighs> of James.
0: And you it's already a- kept- it, but there there was an evergreen tree there, wasn't there?
1: No, there wasn't a tree. Evergreens don't tend to grow there, it's not quite good climate for it.
0: And okay, as long and, as and you, as mean, long as you don't take away just, just, right? just don't there's take no- just don't take away the idea that there was no room in the inn, that it was packed, that it had something it didn't have anything to do with like privacy. Can-
1: no, well, it did have something to do with privacy. there's no room in the inn to have a baby, mm-hmm. right? Um, Because you need a little bit of space to have a kid.
0: So uh, what do I get to keep from Christmas? I feel like you're taking Magi, the Christmas tree, the manger. We still get a manger, though, right?
1: Yeah, you still get a manger. But Jesus wasn't born in the manger because that would require Mary climbing into the manger, which would have been awkward. (laughs) Um, She has a baby and then she places him in the manger, which is a feeding trough. Mm -hmm. And a feeding trough is not really where you want to give birth.
0: No, but the word manger...
1: When people say he was born in the manger, that is technically incorrect.
0: But manger, is it's setting us up for something, right?
1: It is setting us up, right? And anybody who knows French knows that. Manger means to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, so here, here is a theme that we have in Luke, but it's in all the Gospels, which is Jesus eats. He eats a lot. Um, he eats indiscriminately. So in the Gospel of Luke, which is where we have the manger, three times Jesus will banquet with Pharisees and scribes, but he also eats a lot with sinners and tax collectors. And then he, you know, if he feeds 5,000, Luke drops off the 4,000, cause it's kind of anti-clim- anticlimactic after you do five. Um, and you have a significant last supper and then you have a, a supper, uh, at the, uh, when they get to Emmaus, there's a supper. Mm-hmm. And then there's a breakfast later on, right? Where Jesus eats. Cause it, and th- that actually proves he's, he's back in the yep. flesh. Cause ghosts don't eat. Right. Cause ghosts don't, don't have digestive systems. Um, so, um, what what the Gospels were doing, and what I think Jesus himself was doing, um, is enacting um, what would be called in antiquity the Messianic banquet. There was this Jewish view at the time, in fact, some Jews still hold it, that the kingdom of heaven, or the world to come, is a giant banquet. So what do you do? You recline a table, because you recline because it's a banquet, like, peel me a grape recline.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You recline a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with your parents and your grandparents, and all those people who have gone on before. Um, and it's this giant meal. It's a fish dinner, by the way. Um, it's a giant meal, um, and and everybody has enough to eat. Isaiah talks about that. It's this this great banquet on the mountain of the Lord, where there's there's you know wonderful wine and fabulous food. And and to all my conservative Protestant friends, it really is wine, wine, and not Welch's grape juice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I'm sorry if that was, but you know you can drink water if you need it, cause, and seltzer probably wish. Um, <laughs> So what Jesus is doing with this table fellowship, this, this open table commensality, is saying, in my presence, it is as if we were at that messianic banquet, and I want any, everybody following me to participate in that messianic banquet, which, which means you, you share your food with others, and you dine not just with people of your own family, and not just with people of your own social class, but you invite in those people who cannot reciprocate in kind, they can't give you the same food that you can give them, because they don't have the resources but they can reciprocate in love Mm -hmm. and they can reciprocate in quality, if not in quantity. And you have warnings like the parable of the rich man and Lazarus also in Luke, um, where Lazarus is engaging in conspicuous consumption. He's feasting and and the poor man, um, rich man is just chowing down and the poor man would have just wanted a crumb that fell off of his table. Mm -hmm. So the manger sets up all that food imagery. Hmm. But we, because we just think he's born in a manger, and you know we say single way in a manger. Yeah,
0: but that's why, especially these stories are like photographs that it takes a long time to develop to really get all that's in there. And I, I would assume part of being a student of scripture for the entirety of one's life is that there's always something that we can learn, and there's always more layers to it. Or something
1: we might not notice yeah,
0: that we miss it. Which is
1: why. It's so good, like, reading these texts every year in Greek with my students and, and some students. Well, why does Luke use this word rather than that word? Or how come Mark uses this phrase? And it's like, never thought about that. Go write a paper, and then you've got a good dissertation hmm. coming after that. Because always new things pop up. And I think anybody has that. If you have a favorite book, oh, I forgot that part. Hmm. Or this this part now speaks to me in a way that it hadn't before.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Agent. Okay
1: stories are great, and I wish everybody appreciated them like I do.
0: Well, here's what everyone should appreciate, is that your book, the title is Light of the World, Uh, I highly recommend, this is a, the the subtitle is A Beginner's Guide to Advent. I would encourage everyone, we've had two books on the podcast that we've, uh, we've highlighted that are for Advent. One is Honest Advent by my painter friend Scott Erickson. It's a great visual uh, way to connect with the story, and it's, uh, it's like a daily read that you can have through the month of December. Uh, I would encourage you to get that like as a daily devotion. Get AJ's book as well. Uh, it's a great sort of deep dive into these stories. Some of these stories you've heard so many times, but there are layers to them that I think AJ helps us see that uh, will change your uh, experience around Advent. So the book is Light of the World, the author, A.J. Levine, thank you so much for being back on the podcast. It is an absolute pleasure.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you. And if your listeners have any questions, they can always email me. Do that. Let's do that again sometime, time, Luke. Always I, you
0: said that last time, and it was like five weeks later we're on the podcast again. I've literally never had someone on the podcast this quickly in succession. So we're, we'll definitely have you back on. We have to.
1: Thank you so very Deal. much. Yeah. What a nice thank you. thank you. Thanks for checking out news Newsworthy
0: with Norris Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.